everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast. I'm Abby Branker, sitting here with Alan Kudan. Hello. And we are continuing our discussion of the history of killer plants this week. An unexpected part two. Unexpected? Yeah. I, I did not think we were going to cover as much ground, if you will, as we have already. <laughs> so... We, we broke this one up. If you haven't listened already to part one, I would suggest going back. That precedes this, lays the groundwork. But we're going to jump in and uh, killer plants ahoy. Yeah, I mean, this was a pretty deep-seated topic. Nice. That has just continued to really just blossom out of control. Well done. I'm applauding your, uh, your plant puns. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so let's get back into it, shall we? Mm. Okay, here we go. All right, I'm really excited to talk about all the movies that we watched for this episode. Okay. And we're going to start with a famous, famous, the most famous killer plant saga that exists. Not really a saga, but a series of remakes. (laughs) Okay. And that is Little Shop of Horrors. So in 1960, a film came out with the title Little Shop of Horrors, which would turn into one of the most important and well-known killer plant stories in modern history. The original film was directed by Roger Corman, written by Charles B. Griffith. And actually, so fun fact, this was the debut of Jack Nicholson on film. He had like a very small role. Really? Yeah. Oh, we didn't see this one. Well, sorry, I haven't seen this one. Have you seen this one? No. Another fun fact is that this film only took a record two and a half days to shoot. Wait, it's a feature film? They shot in two and a half days? Yes. What the heck? Yeah. That's, That's something. Yeah. Some believe that the plot was inspired by a short story called Green Thoughts, written in 1932 by John Collier. And I wanted to feature it on Lunatics Library because it kind of inspired this huge, you know, film series. But it's way too long for that. But but go read that if you're interested. Looking at you, Bob Don. (laughs) So Little Shops slowly gained popularity with audiences, which a apparently is like propelled in recent years by Jack Nicholson's role because a lot of people are like looking back at it for that. It's very different than the little shop, like musical and musical film version that came later. Jack Nicholson doesn't sing to a plant. Yeah. The original reads much more like a detective film, um, you know, and it's a lot less singy. Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. In 1982, an off Broadway musical inspired by the 1960 film came out. The music was written by Alan Menken, lyrics by Howard Ashman. The play ran for five years at Manhattan's Orpheum Theater in the East Village. So much of the same music from this off-Broadway version was actually used in the film remake that came out four years later. So here we are. 1986, the famous film version, which stars Rick Moranis, Steve Martin, and also has appearances by, by Bill Murray, John Candy, and Jim Belushi comes out. Don't forget the woman. We're going to talk about her. Don't you worry. Okay. This version was directed by Frank Oz. I looked him up because, you know, as you do, Oz is an interesting guy. So if you're not familiar with him, which I wasn't, he's directed films like The Stepford Wives from 2004, Death at a Funeral from 2007, but he's also directed films like The Dark Crystal and The Muppets Take Manhattan. Muppets Take Manhattan's a great movie. (laughs) Additionally... He has over 150 acting credits for voicing various members of Sesame Street, notably Grover, Burt, and the Cookie Monster, and the Muppets, notably Animal and Fozzie Bear, and for voicing Yoda in Star Wars. Wow. 
So a very prolific guy that nobody has ever heard of. And so this version of the film also stars Levi Stubbs of The Four Tops as Audrey too. If you don't know the premise of Little Shop, I'm going to read the the IMDb logline here because I Mm. think it sums it up quite well. A nerdy florist finds his chance for success in romance with the help of a giant man-eating plant who demands to be fed. The film grossed just under $40 million globally. Which is a great ROI if they shot in two and a half days. No, this is that was the original film. This is the 1986 film. Well, that's not as nearly good ROI then. <laughs> this film is important to the killer plant subgenre for so many reasons. Like I said before, it's perhaps the most famous modern example, but it's also very campy and still, I would say, stands the test of time. The killer plant in question, called Audrey II, or Audrey Jr., depending on the version, is again like a, like a giant carnivorous plant, right? That's what it is modeled after, like a giant Venus flytrap or a giant, probably most close to a Venus flytrap, right? I think if you need to put a visual on it, you picture the piranha plant from Mario. That, that's true. That's very true. The origin story here, which is also important, is that during a total eclipse a plant appeared at a nearby shop in Seymour, played by Rick Moranis, buys it. Mm -hmm. To answer your question, Audrey One, or the woman, the the love interest, is played by Ellen Green. And fun fact, Cindy Lauper actually turned down that role. Which I think really worked out. I don't think Cindy Lauper would have been a great casting for that. And Ellen Green is just so iconic in it. She does such a, (laughs) she has such a specific role to play. So this is my first time seeing this movie. Tell uh, us your thoughts. I had no idea Rick Moranis was such a good singer. Oh my God, he's so great. I listen to that soundtrack, I would say, several times a week. So, several I times love, a day. I love the Little Shop soundtrack from that from that film. Yeah, because the Bill Murray, not Bill Murray. the uh, what's Who's the guy? Rick Moranis? No, uh, yeah, because the Jack Nicholson version of There's No Singing. That's right. But there's also like it's been, you know, I think in 2003 it made its Broadway debut. And then since then it's been, you know, a play broadly. So, yeah. And there was like the 2018 production um, in by, San Francisco. Yeah. In San Francisco. Directed by Tyler Christie. That's correct. Yeah. That was a great one. But it, yeah. And so it's such a iconic musical at this point that if you go on Spotify, there's, you know, 20 different versions of the soundtrack from all of the different Broadway casts and yeah. traveling plays. But, but the 1986 film one has a very special place in my heart. Does it have any sequels? Not that I know of. Wow. So I just Googled to see if there's any sequels. And the answer is no. However, uh, back in 2020, it was greenlit for a remake. Oh, is it happening? I don't know. All the articles are saying why the Little Shop of Horrors remake should be abandoned. <laughs> and there's a bunch of those. Got it. Interesting. Oh my goodness. The remake was originally cast with Billy Porter, Chris Evans, and Scarlett Johansson. Damn. Kind of a weird cast when you think of the original. Doesn't really fit. Yeah. So let's swing in the other direction here. While Little Shop remains one of my favorite films in this genre, of course, but in general, on the other end of the spectrum, you have a film called The Happening from 2008. Now we're talking quality. <laughs> so I saw this, I think, when it came out. Alan hadn't seen it. This was another first watch for him. 
If you haven't seen The Happening, it's an M. Night film that is notably the worst film he's ever made. Uh, I mean, I have not seen his entire library. I cannot uh, say that with certainty. But holy cow, this was a bad movie. A really bad movie from everything. The acting, the writing, the execution. It's just bizarrely bad. If you, if, Again, if you're not familiar, it stars Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel. The IMDb tagline is, A science teacher, his wife, and a young girl struggle to survive a plague that causes those infected to commit suicide. And it's, I would say difficult to watch too because of that premise and then spoiler alert the ending surprise is that the plants emit a toxin that causes people to want to end their own lives which is again just like a difficult concept to watch on top of having it be very poorly acted i did appreciate that it also like removed any like sense of self or sense of pain yeah. You know, like that could have been, that could have gone the other way real fast where like their body moves without like, but they're still like cognizant of right. what's going on. Yeah, that's terrifying. That would have been ho- horrible, but it wasn't the case. Um, people acted just like the rest of the cast uh, of just like complete <laughs> zombies that have no emotions. Yeah, have no idea what it is to be human. Watching the acting in this was so interesting. Yeah. Just like people had one speed and that was confused. Yes. That's exactly how to say it. That's so right. It's just like. So confused. Like, even even the guy, he's like a science teacher. and He's like so confused all the time. It's just, it was probably, I don't know if I've seen a worse script. <laughs> like when it comes to like the, when it comes to the dialogue. Yeah. And we, I mean, we've seen some real bad movies. Yeah, oh, truly. And this was how many millions of dollars to make this movie? I don't think I wrote it down, but I think it was like four, like it was a lot. It doesn't matter. It's a yeah. huge waste. Yes. It was uh, like 40 million or something. Right. Yeah. Because you're buying all of these huge celebrities. Yeah. And then giving them writing that feels like it was, you know, ripped out of like a a 12 year old's uh diary and then either not directing them at all or directing them to be bad like it it had to have been a specific choice and i don't want to like totally shit on him because i love his work i love m night and i i get when but it's just like it's kind of like confounding because he's such an expert in a lot of these other films and he directs you know, similar, I would say, caliber actors all the time. But so to me, this must have been like a specific choice that didn't land. But it, it's just kind of like, you know, I'm not trying to, to shit on anybody. I get that like sometimes the stars don't align and that's what happened here. Right. But you could tell that this wasn't even just like the actors. No, the, Those doing... actors can do other things. Right. Like we've I'm not a big Mark Wahlberg fan, but I've seen him in a lot of movies because he's in every fucking movie uh, <laughs> where he does a lot better with even with even similar levels of writing. Uh, right, for like in like a Michael a Bay film, he's fine. I, yes. Like Zoe mm-hmm. Deschanel, she has a whole show. She's hilarious. She's quirky. In this film, she comes across as like the most milquetoast person you've ever met in your life. So like this was a deliberate 
yeah. choice to make people act like this. Yeah. yeah. Which is very interesting when you look at the, the concept of the film of it's the plants making people do stuff. I mean, you have M. Night making people <laughs> sacrifice their careers. <laughs> I mean, I think their careers are fine, but... I mean, but despite his best efforts. Yeah. Yeah, truly. It's an interesting one. Uh, I don't know if this is a good time to bring it up, but uh, so like this whole making people kill themselves thing is not without founding in nature. Okay, tell us. So uh, you have the zombie ant fungus, which has come up on this podcast before. Are we running out of material? No, just you, connecting the dots that all horrors really. Yeah, at the I end mean, of the do, day you, do you think that the zombie ant fungus doesn't belong in killer ants in, in uh, killer plant episodes? I think it does. Yeah. So this is also, I mean, is a fungus? Are we allowed to talk about fungi? Yeah, I we don't talk about it a, a ton, but yes, I think for sure. Okay, because I mean, we I know that fungi are not plants. Are they part of the plant kingdom? No, I I, I looked this up. Wow. They're not. They're their own thing. But but proceed. Plant, animal. There's five, right? Okay. So we have the zombie ant fungus. Uh, and I had, I had to Google the official name because I only know it as zombie ant fungus, which is Ophiocordyceps unilateris. Wow. Okay. Yep. Uh, and so this is pretty badass. <laughs> so it's, it's this fungus that grows, I think, in the rainforest. And it spreads, it spreads its spores all over the place. And it infects in like if those spores get in contact with ant colonies, the spores infest the ants um, nervous system and basically turn the ant into a a, a zombie uh, where the, the, the ant cannot control its own behavior. It will uh, climb as high as it can. In, into the into the open, which is not exactly what uh, an animal would w- want to do, what that faces predation, and so it climbs as high as it can and just uses its mandibles to bite onto a leaf or whatever, so that it can't possibly move, and it just stays there until it dies. Wow! Uh, and then the uh, the fungus even sprouts out of the um, the ant's brain. Because like that's where that's where it was roosting because of its nervous system, and so it it sprouts to like further make the ant even more visible, and so then uh, things that eat ants, so like I don't know birds, right? Yeah, uh, will come down because they're so out in the open. They'll come, they'll get scooped up by the by the predator, um, get digested, and then the spores get pooped out elsewhere, and that's how the fungus spreads. Wow. Nature's wild, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the whole point of like planet Earth, but it's so true. Uh, and the zombie ant fungus, besides possibly being the inspiration for uh, The Happening, <laughs> is uh, a definitive inspiration for The Last of Us video game, which I think is getting a movie, if I'm not mistaken. Cool. It stars the likeness of Elliot Page. Yeah. And it's all about a post-apocalyptic world uh, full of zombies. But they're not zombies because it's just humans that have been infected with a fungus. Mm -hmm. And they act not quite like the ants, 
but they are fully controlled by the fungus uh, and attack humans and do all sorts of, they're the enemies of this world. Uh, and they have overrun populations, and it's so easy to get uh, infected via just even spores on the ground. So we always think about zombies of like, oh, gosh, if they bite me, I'm infected. But now it's just airborne, you know? Yeah. You step on one thing, and like a poof, you're fucked. Do you remember in the Disaster Films series that we did, the Lunatics Library that went with it, we had actually like all of, <laughs> I think all of the disaster stories were kind of plant-themed or fungus-themed. Hmm. We had one that was from William Hope Hodgson, who was an old-timey writer. And it was like, remember, it was like this thing where it would, if you touch this this uh, mushroom, it would slowly turn you into like a fungi person. Oh, yeah. That's probably when we talked about this. Yeah, we also had another one written by Wimoto Nyoko, who, from the Black Women Are Scary podcast. And that one was also like tree themed as well. So just kind of interesting that we ended up with a lot of environmental, <laughs> environmental themed stories on the disaster stories episode. But yeah. yeah, the idea of fungi, zombie, that whole thing is, you know, I think we see it in old timey literature quite a bit. I think it's just so easy to like make the jump because fun- fungi, because like like a, a fungus has spores that's like right. it's, it's like its main deal yeah. and like spores kind of resemble i mean i'm i'm really just putting my own spin on this uh just are very similar to a virus yeah you know it it gets in through the respiratory system and it makes you sick like i'm sure that there's a normal plant that does that but like i think of a fungus when i think of spores yeah for sure think of mold you know mhm well mold is a growth right it's a fungus yeah there you go. The next film that we watched from 1989, Godzilla versus Biolante. A real classic. It's a lesser known film. Um, How dare you? I would say heartbreaking and also at the same time, a very silly Godzilla film. I mean, I don't think I'm offending the film by saying it's lesser known. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, it being campy is because it's from the 80s. 80s Godzilla is wonderful. Yeah, I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying that's, I like campy Godzilla films. Campy Godzilla is possibly best Godzilla. Sure. Um, It's either that or just like super, super scary Godzilla. Yeah. Like it's the, it's the in between when it's, he's a little serious that I'm not a huge fan. But anyways, I digress. We're talking about Biollante. And I don't remember the name of the modern Pokemon that, Biolante reminds me of, but it Bell Sprout. No, like a modern, like a new Pokemon. Weeping Bell. No, like what was new, the middle one? No, it's a new one. It's not one of those. Oh, that was the middle one. Who's the third one? Victory Bell. But it it's like this very tall, huge, like huge, like double Godzilla size, massive plant. Oh, from the movie. I thought we were still talking about Pokemon. No, no, from the movie with a big big red flower and it's very sad it cries it like it's kind of like tugs at your heartstrings this movie uh yeah at first <laughs> oh you didn't have that experience well so like biolante went through multiple forms and so like i was kind of curious how a plant was gonna fight godzilla right because godzilla has his atomic breath and everyone knows that plants are weak against fire. Again, Pokemon rules. So, uh, and like, it's a plant. It can't move. He can just shoot it. And that's exactly what he did. And Biollante went down fast. 
Well, he like electrocutes it. Oh yeah. What happened with the electricity? Well, anyways, um, well, shoot. He shoots it with like his dragon breath. That's like electric. His atomic breath. Yeah, and it is you know it electrifies the plant, electrocutes the plant. I think the electric. No, the electricity was from something else. But we're we're getting wrapped up in the weeds here. No plant pun intended. But that was just version one of Biolante, because after that burns down, uh, it it regrew under the earth and came back as this like big plant dragon thing that could move around. Yeah, I'm sorry. But also, this plant was controlled by the spirit of the little psychic girl's sister, something like that. These these movies have a, a lot going on uh, that you got to pay close attention to. But, uh, you know, we're mostly there just for the big monster bashes. After Violante goes d- down the first time, it comes back looking very much like Audrey 2, but a lot bigger because it has to fight Godzilla. And it cl- crawls around on its vines and stuff and, like, wraps them up. And But it still falls victim to atomic breath. Yeah. I thought it was a, a great... If you're into Godzilla and you haven't seen it, a must watch. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Who is the other main villain? Oh, yeah. The, the only, my only criticism of this film, uh-huh. my, only, my only criticism of this film is that Biollante has such a small part in it. Sure, that's true. Biollante is in maybe 15% of the movie. The majority, and it's like not even... Because we're not focusing on giant Godzilla battles, which is something that happens in many Godzilla movies. If there's like, first off, there's like, what, 50, 60 Godzilla movies, something crazy. Yeah. Sometimes it's just be, due to budgetary reasons, you don't get a lot of battles. But in this case, you do get battles, but not with Biollante. It was all about like the stupid robot sh- flying ship that had the, oh, the, yeah, yeah. the, the hot mirror. Yeah. Uh, that Godzilla would shoot its breath and it shoots it right back. Like we we saw that battle like a fifty times throughout the movie mm-hmm. because the humans just kept refining the design. Like no no, no. we are here for killer plants. <laughs> That's right. Get out of here. One thing we didn't watch, but it's a book that I read, and it's a very 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 one of my favorite science fiction books. Turn to the screw. The day of the triffids. What? So I want to shout out to my friend Miles for like during college, him telling me this is my favorite book, and I read it, and it's so good. But the day of the triffids is a novel from nineteen fifty one written by John Wyndham. Eleven years later, it was made into a feature film. It went on to inspire three radio dramas and several television versions of the story. What's it about? Here is the IMDb logline for the 1962 film. After an unusual meteor shower leaves most of the human population blind, a merchant Navy officer must find a way to conquer tall, aggressive plants which are feeding on people and animals. And I will read it at that and say, if anyone out there has not read it, I suggest that you do. I have not read it. Here's a fun fact that will make you want to read it even more. Mm. Director Danny Boyle said in an interview. Love Danny Boyle. That the opening hospital scene from the day of the Triffids. It was like this very harrowing scene in the film and in the book. But in the book, like, you know, the guy, the main character wakes up. He's blind. He's trying to figure out what's going on. He's in a hospital. It's like this. It's very difficult and heavy right Mm. and so danny boyle says that this scene is what inspired alex garland to write the opening scene of 28 days later which makes perfect sense yeah speaking of alex garland let's talk about annihilation from 2018 oh yeah that movie yeah we're not going to talk about men from 2021 we're going to talk about annihilation from 2018 why i have thoughts on men 
Yeah, you do. <laughs> so a log line from Annihilation. A biologist signs up for a dangerous secret expedition into a mysterious zone where the laws of nature don't apply. Do you remember this when we watched it at your apartment? Uh, I do. I thought we saw it in theaters. It, we missed it in theaters. Uh, well, anyways, I remember seeing this film and I remember thinking, man, I got to watch this again because there's a lot going on and I'm not following it. Yeah, it deserves a rewatch. But if you missed it, so the film stars Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Tessa Thompson. The film itself deals with unruly flora and fauna, which led me to an Atlantic article by Amanda Ong, which uses Annihilation as an example to talk through how women and killer plants have often been paired up in pop culture. Typical. <laughs> and as always, I'm going to post all the sources uh, for this whole series at lunaticsproject.com so if anybody wants to like dive into any of these articles we always list our sources on our website okay so back to the article though so this is a quote from ong quote Mm. lethal vegetation has long been a metaphor for female disobedience in western mythology and in society at large this concept has developed over time across two main trajectories in the first Dangerous botany embodies patriarchal anxieties over female access to education and wisdom. The tale of original sin, for example, implicitly cautions against curiosity in women. Eve's act of eating a fruit from the tree of knowledge sets the stage for all evil on earth. That's right. (laughs) In Greek mythology, the goddess Hecate was seen as a morally ambivalent figure because she protected families from harm. How dare she? But was also associated with poisonous herbs administered in witchcraft. Such stories offer an allegorical warning that women can't be trusted with knowledge lest they use it to bring disorder to mankind. You don't need mythology to know that. (laughs) Killer plants have also served a second narrative function. They offer a vision of how masculine aggression can be countered with weaponized domesticity. Consider some of the compelling female characters to appear recently on the big screen and to have harnessed their botanical knowledge to kill or injure. In Lady Macbeth, The Beguiled, and Phantom Thread, women use poisonous mushrooms to eliminate or debilitate the men who antagonize them. Strictly speaking, mushrooms are fungi, not plants, but they're functionally similar to the latter in that they're grown and harvested for food and are relatively immobile. This makes them the perfect foil for the cliche of docile femininity, end quote. I know that was like a very long quote, but I also thought it was important to to wrap up the point that she's making there. Well, we have not touched on the pinnacle example in pop culture of women killing with plants. Okay. I'll give you one guess. You can do this. Oh, Poison Ivy. Bingo. The pinnacle example. Give me a better one. I mean, I think it's exactly the point that she's making, right? That like any woman who has access to this knowledge of poisonous plants uses it to kill men. Uh, yep. Um, I I really love the, the, like the modern take on Poison Ivy as well. How, you know, she well, she's just like fully rebranded as... Uh, anti-heroes sometimes eco-terrorist still a villain but like really just chaotic neutral yeah um you're talking about from the animation 
from Joel, just her in modern depictions. Oh, sure. Um, whether that's like, you know, uh, New 52 comics or the, the Harley Quinn series. Um, but, you know, she's also gay. There's like a lot. It's, it's She's like such a fun character, but also w- remarkably dangerous. Right. You know, old school Poison Ivy uh, would use like, she had no powers. You know, she was a botanist that would like use like, chemical mixes to make plants do stuff yeah uh but now she's just like swamp thing uh where <laughs> she just has like straight up control like mental control uh with this like this symbiotic link to to plants and nature and can control them at will yeah and i think that's like a reclaiming of that character right and i do think the point is there and it's and I, I, you know gender is a construct and all these things but like when is the last time you saw a quote unquote like masculine character using plants like in a like growing up brewing up a, a cup of poisonous tea to kill their partner? Like can you think of any examples on the reverse? For I was giving you a look um because you were going real heavy into swamp thing territory for a second. Oh, okay. Where before I mean when he is still but he's more of a hero as opposed to Right, which is the point. Yeah. Well, I don't know. He does a lot of pretty dicey things. Mm-hmm. Um, depend- I mean, depends on the depiction of him. Like, if you want to bring up the like the 1980s Swamp Thing movie, yeah. which is campy as hell. Uh-huh. Like, he's kind of a bad guy in the beginning. Uh, where, like, the, the part of the reason the whole accident happened is because he, like, s- screws people over. Right. Uh, and he's just like only cares about making his plant formula and like tries to destroy stuff in the process and hurt a bunch of people. And uh, but the lab gets destroyed and he has to he gets caught in the fire and has to put it out in the swamp and the chemicals from the swamp mix with the fire chemical and he becomes swamp thing. Wow. Um, it's campy as hell and super fun and has a 1987 sequel, I think, something like that, uh, which is even lower budget and further further into the camp realm. Uh, don't I don't recommend it. Okay. Nor do I mean there's also the 1990s TV show that's very fun, but now we're just talking about Swamp Thing again. I'm sorry. That's okay. I can't remember the specifics, but I remember one Swamp Thing comic where he grows poisonous fruit to give out to these like people that are being oppressed as a way to you know, they're, they're supposed to like use it to poison their oppressors because he can't intervene directly. But that's the that's the closest I've got. Well, that's that's interesting, and yeah, I think that's a good that's a cool premise as well. Mm. But to bring the point home here, so there's a few notes I wanted to mention on the Wikipedia page for Belladonna or Nightshade that we talked about earlier. Yes. So this is under like when you go to that page, there's a folklore section, mm. and there's two entries. The first outlines legends that witches would use a botanical mixture of Belladonna and other herbs to create a quote-unquote flying ointment that would allow them to fly, congregate, and then take part in like witches' gatherings. Hell yeah. It would also, it was said to inspire hallucinations. Hell yeah. The second entry outlines the use of nightshade to make women prettier. It talks about a ritual that young Carpathian girls would perform in order to conjure up prettier exteriors. Just something to think about, like as we reflect on like this subgenre and how it's portrayed in pop culture, but also like based in these 
real life, like we talked about Cleopatra using poisonous plants to dilute her eyes or these women in the, in Italy, in the middle ages who used poisonous plants to make themselves, you know, blush and, and all of these things. And it's, it's like, how does that reality of like belief and folklore and uses and ritual around women and plants seep into pop culture, right? And just to kind of like pause and acknowledge that connection that lies, that through line. Like even with the the Godzilla film, right? Godzilla versus Biollante, it features women as botanists. The botanists are women and the plant itself is female. Like Professor Sprout from Harry Potter is a woman. You know, like it's it's just like there's example after example after example of this. You know, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I it, there is like this connection we automatically make with botanists and women. Well, Biolante is only female because it is inhabited by the spirit of the, the psychic girl's dead sister. Right, but like still. Still, yeah, yeah. I just want to make that clear. I, I just thought I want people writing in being like, I have things to say about Biolante. Sure. You got it all wrong. Yeah. Actually, you know, I, I want to hear those. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, write into us. Okay, so... There's a few films, before we get to the conclusions here, a mm-hmm. few honorable mention films I just want to talk through. Just I'm not going to give you any details. I'm just going to speed through this list. Sure. Other examples of killer plants in film we didn't watch. We're not going to talk to, about them extensively, but if you're looking for a holistic list, We'll circle back. One. Don't you worry. <laughs> so we have The Girl with All the Gifts. We have Seed People. The Navy versus the Monsters. Piranha Plants. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, great film. The Thing from Another World, a lot of it's science fiction, as you can tell. The Crawlers, Contamination, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Which I can't believe we didn't watch. And Creepshow. Well, maybe Attack of the Killer Tomatoes will be... Horror Movie Club? Horror Movie Club, yeah. Yeah, but no, I'll, I'll, I'll nominate it, but no one votes for my stuff. <laughs> they usually do. All of the examples of killer plants and media conjure up different reactions from audiences and different themes. But one obvious allegory that is perhaps the most common in this subgenre is environmental concerns, right? Some films take the quote-unquote nature is uncontrollable approach, while others warn of the mistreatment of nature or the effects of global warming. And I, I just want to like you know, I'm not going to give any grand conclusions about this subgenre as a whole because, it's, you know, not every film is made with the same intention. But there are kind of these undercurrents beyond just like women being botanists and things like that. But there are all these there are these undercurrents of a lot of these things like the happening have this like environmentalism spin on them, mm. you know, and, the, and that's kind of those two things make sense, right? That plants should be pissed at humanity right so they they sh- they could hypothetically it's not a jump to say that they're punishing us or that they eventually have to kill us in order to keep the planet alive just one counterpoint is that due to like climate change like yeah plant biomes are definitely going to shift yeah but like yeah maybe we'll have a big desert around the equator but that just means all of the poles can become like rainforests, you know, like humanity won't survive. But I think plant life is going to flourish. What's the name of that movie? Waterworld? Yeah. What if the world floods and then it's all aqua marine Thank, plants? Uh, um, there Seeds. are is there is so like, the, the vast majority of uh, the oxygen 
that like uh, that the plants put off comes from sea algae, mm. you know? Uh, and well, that's getting killed off because of uh, ocean temperature warming. Yeah. Um, but as things shift, maybe new areas are going to open up. Seagrass, seaweed, all this stuff. Like the, the ocean is full of plants. So like, yeah, we might no longer have rainforests, but we might have undersea forests. Yeah, that'd be cool. For we them, see them, not but, for yeah. us. Yeah. Cool. So I guess our main conclusions here are that <laughs> killer plants sometimes have themes of environmental disaster and oftentimes portray women as evil botanists because of sexism. But don't forget, Rick Moranis was the evil botanist in Little Shop. He's not evil, though. He's so sweet. He's like literally such a kind, genuine person. He's a relatable villain. He's, I don't know, that I would call him a villain. He murdered somebody. Yeah, he just Multiple it. people. I'm on Team Rick. I mean, sure, but that's because you're evil, too. <laughs> well, it's because I am a woman. Just checking all the boxes, filling <laughs> the stereotypes. Uh, well, thank you all so much for listening. This was a super fun one. Very, I don't know, very interesting to learn about it and kind of just like cracked open my curiosity. And, you know, we got some follow-ups on our end. Well, don't don't leave them hanging. What's <laughs> What's coming next? Ah, very good. So Lunatics Library coming next, as always, featuring five plant-themed pieces that's a lot it's i think our most perhaps if not tie for the the most submissions we ever gotten so i had to write zero stories for this one i'm so thrilled we have five really great pieces five really great narrators and i'm super super excited so we'll see you next week or you'll hear from us next week i suppose how podcasts work see you next time Thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content, consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron-exclusive podcast, Horror Movie Club. Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel. You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok, and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more. And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there. Our cover art is by Pilar Kep. And musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.